Good morning. Good morning. Please join me with a prayer of illumination. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. So by your spirit, light our way as we read your word. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Today our reading is Exodus 14, 10 through 31, and in your pew Bible, it's on page 71. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And then there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters behind a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Karen. 
So last Thursday, Murray and I were flying back from Greenville, South Carolina. We had been at the uh, ECOS National Gathering. It was a great conference. And we got on a small American Airlines plane. And before we took off, the pilot over the intercom told us that there might be some slight turbulence as we ascend, but, but not to worry. Just stay seated and buckled in your, in your seat. Well, as the flight began, sure enough, there was a few jolts and a few jerks, but nothing severe. And finally, as we began to level out, I thought that the turbulence was over. And so I leaned my chair back, closed my eyes, ready to take a much-needed nap. Boom! Then all of a sudden, there was this jerk and there was this jolt. And I, I instinctively grabbed onto the armrest of my chair. And the woman next to me, well, she tried to grab the armrest, but really she grabbed my arm instead because I was in the way. We didn't even know each other, right? And, and she's freaked out, and I'm a little nervous, too. I mean, it was such an unexpected jerk and jolt. I actually got a head rush. It was like I was on a roller coaster. But when you're on a roller coaster, you know it's coming, right? You know that first drop's going to be the most severe. You can expect it. You can anticipate it. You can get ready for it. There was no way to get ready for this jolt, this jerk, this drop. Yes, when we fly on an airplane and hit turbulence, it's unexpected. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how severe it's going to be. Life can be a lot like that, can it? I mean, we all know that we live in a fallen and broken world, that sin abounds, that there are going to be bumps along the road, that there will be trials and temptations, there will be storms along the way. We all know that life is not easy. We know from the, the Bible story of Job that even if you do all the right things like Job did, there's no guarantee that life is going to be easy. In fact, it might be quite hard. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John chapter 16, in this world, you will have trouble. Sometimes things can happen that are so completely unexpected, so out of our control that we feel overwhelmed by the storm that is struck. Like when your child falls on their head, she has a severe concussion, and, and initially when you pick her up, she's not even able to formulate sentences, and you rush her to the emergency room praying that there's no permanent brain damage that has taken place. Life is full of unexpected storms. Your parents are in a serious car wreck. There are several broken bones. They have to have surgery. You're not sure how they're going to come out of the surgery, and you're praying desperately because, well, you don't know if they're going to have a full recovery. Yes, life is full of unexpected storms. The sudden layoff comes. Your future job prospects look bleak. You're not sure in which direction your career is going to take. You become very anxious about the future. Yes, life is full of unexpected storms. A dreaded diagnosis comes. Or your loved one has a stroke and is unable to speak. Or she has a, a sudden brain aneurysm and must live in a nursing home the rest of her life. Yes, life is full of unexpected storms. Sadly, everything I just listed has happened to one of our members of our congregation in the past. Those are real storms that hit real people. They were totally unexpected. There was no way to prepare for the storm that came. There was no way to, to, to be ready. What are we to do when the unexpected storms of life come our way? When we feel completely overwhelmed, who or what are we to cling to? To find out. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. Luke, chapter 8. It may be found on page 1100 of your Red Pew Bible. Luke, chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. 
God, we thank you so much that by your Holy Spirit, you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. Oh God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would guide us now that as we read your word, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. Listen to the word of the Lord. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills. The hills on the east side are particularly steep. Cool air rushing down the ravines and the hills around the lake can collide with the warm air above the lake and create an instant windstorm. Storms are not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. But four of Jesus' disciples are fishermen who have spent their lives fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They are experts at sailing and fishing. They've spent most of their life on this Sea of Galilee. Surely this was not the first windstorm that they've ever encountered on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Luke uses the word for boat here. It's the same word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 5 when, he tells, uh, when Jesus tells Peter to take his boat and push out from the, the shore just a little bit so that Jesus might preach to the crowds. As Peter, John, James, John, and Andrew are in a fisherman's boat, it may even be Peter's boat, and they're on the Sea of Galilee, the sea that they've been sailing for most of their lives. This is not the first windstorm. So Jesus, in comfort and confidence, falls asleep because these men are skilled fishermen. They're skilled sailors, and Jesus falls asleep. Now, it makes sense that Jesus, the carpenter's son, an itinerant preacher, would sleep with four professional fishermen at the helm. Surely they've done this before. I mean, what could go wrong? Nothing. There's no storm that these men can't handle on their own, is there? Jesus is in good hands, right? He has nothing to worry about. That's why he's sleeping. What could possibly go wrong? And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Do you see the irony of this scene? These four professional fishermen are telling Jesus, the carpenter's son, that they're perishing. They've hit a storm that they're not sure they can make it. 
I don't know why, why they're telling Jesus. I mean, as the carpenter's son, are they expecting him to build another boat? What do they want Jesus to do? I, I mean, they're the professionals. They're the fishermen. They're the, they're the sailors. They should know what to do in the midst of a storm. It's clear also from the response that the disciples have after Jesus calms the storm that they had very little expectation that he would be able to calm a storm. None of them expected him to do that. Sure, they've seen Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law. They've seen Jesus heal a paralytic, cast out numerous demons, heal a leper. At this point in Luke's gospel, they've even seen Jesus give life to a dead man. Jesus has done some great things. He's preached some great messages, but none of his disciples expected him to calm the storm. I mean, after all, God alone is the one who controls the weather, right? At least that's what we read in Psalm 107, 28 to 31. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Only God can control the weather, right? In Exodus chapter 14 that Karen read just a moment ago, you'll note that before Moses spreads out his arms to part the Red Sea, he he tells the people of Israel, so they're very clear that it's God who's going to part the Red Sea. It's God who's going to deliver them. He says in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses wants to make sure that the people of Israel know that it's God who's going to deliver them. It's God who's going to control the winds and ultimately part the Red Sea that they might walk through on dry ground and ultimately drown Pharaoh's army. It's only God can control the weather, right? Moses doesn't want to take credit for that. Only God controls the weather. Everyone knows that. So when the disciples wake Jesus up in a panic to tell them that they are perishing, it seems to be driven by their desire to make sure he's awake before they capsize, to make sure that he's ready. It's like in the movie Sully, you know, the story of the U.S. Airways uh, plane that landed on the Hudson River. Sully gets on the, the intercom right before they land and on the, have a crash landing on the Hudson River and says, this is the captain, brace for impact. The disciples are telling Jesus, Jesus, wake up. We're in danger. We're, in, we're about to perish here. Be ready. Get ready to swim. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, which Mark actually has Peter as his uh, primary source for information about this story, Mark chapter 4, verse 38, he records the words of the disciples this way. Teacher, do you, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing, that we're about to drown? Wake up. How is it possible for Jesus to sleep through this horrible storm? Surely he's getting wet like everyone else. They're taking on water, we we hear. They're they're filling with water. How is Jesus able to sleep amidst the storm? I don't know about you, but when the storms of life come to me, I have a hard time sleeping. A couple years ago, our daughter Elizabeth uh, fell, and she landed head first, and she had a very severe concussion. In fact, when we first got to her, she couldn't even formulate sentences. Her her brain had taken such a a hard hit. And so immediately, we rushed her to the emergency room, panicked and worried and praying, oh, God, let there not be any permanent brain damage to our daughter. I don't sleep well when I'm anxious. 
I don't sleep well during the storms of life. Do you? But Jesus is in this boat, sleeping, while everyone else is toiling in fear. How is Jesus able to sleep? In Isaiah 26, verse 3, we read these words. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus has peace amidst the storm because Jesus has placed his faith and his trust in his heavenly Father's hands. He knows that he is in good hands because his heavenly Father is going to care for him and watch over him. And he knows that he has the power to calm the storm. Unfortunately, the disciples don't have that same faith. That's why Jesus asked them after the miracle, he says, where is your faith? This is the first time the faith of the disciples has, have, has really been tested. Up to this point, the disciples have simply been with Jesus and they've watched him do some amazing miracles. They've seen him heal a leper instantly. They've seen him, him give, uh, allow a paralyzed man to walk for the first time. They've, they've seen Jesus give life to a dead man. But they haven't had to do any miracles themselves. They haven't been commissioned to do so yet. And they've heard Jesus preach some, some really great sermons I mean, and tell some great parables. In fact, right before this incident, Jesus tells that famous parable, the familiar one that we all know about the, well, the farmer who sows the seeds. You know the story. The farmer sows the seeds pretty recklessly. He, he allows the seeds to fall on all kinds of soil. He, he allows the, the seeds to fall on the wayside where birds go and pick it up so that it never takes root. He allows the seeds to fall among rocky soil where it shoots up quickly, but because there's no depth of soil, ultimately it perishes. He allows the seeds to fall among thorns so that it grows up, but the thorns ultimately choke it out so that it doesn't live. He allows the seeds finally to fall on some good fertile soil where it produces a hundred times that which was planted. Now this is one of the few parables that, that Jesus actually explains The seed is the word of God, and God is the one who's planting these seeds. And we, the people, we're the soils. People who are on the the wayside or or on the road are are people who, where the seed falls, but Satan immediately takes it away, and they never really take root and believe. The rocky soil are, are people who, well, they hear the word of God, and great joy, they react and respond, but because there's no depth of faith there, when trials and temptations come, they ultimately fall away. The soil with the thorns are, are people where the seed, the word of God, plants into their soil, into their hearts, but, but it grows among with thorns, and, and ultimately they're overcome by the cares and the worries and the concerns of this world. Final, the, finally, the fertile soil are the people who hear the word of God, and because there is great depth to their faith, they produce a hundredfold that which was planted, and they tell others the good news of God's love. What kind of soil are you today? Now, we're all here this morning, and I'm assuming that the the Word of God has taken root in some way, but but what kind of soil are we exactly? Are we the rocky, shallow soil that, well, that believes in the moment, but when the trials and the temptations come, our faith tends to fade away? Are are we the kind of soil that has allowed the worries and the concerns of this world to to grow up among us so so that we become consumed by the worries and concerns of this world rather than focused on the Word of God? I pray that we're all a pure, fertile soil. The word of God plants into our hearts, and it has depth, so that we might produce for the kingdom of God a hundred times that which was planted. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe the way Jesus was able to be calm in the midst of the storm is because he had a pure heart. He lived out the Shema, the most important commandment, according to Jesus, that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that tells us that we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, with a pure heart, Jesus had his heart and mind focused on God, not on the storm that was around him. Where are our hearts and minds focused today? Are we focused on the storms and the uncertainties of this life? Are we focused on God and the promises we find in his word? It's when we focus on God and the promises of his word that ultimately we find peace even in the midst of the storms of this life. The disciples were wise in turning towards Jesus in the midst of the storm, but their hearts were more filled with fear rather than faith. Despite all the miracles they've seen Jesus do up to this point, they didn't think he actually had the power to calm the storm. I mean, only God can do that, right? If they thought he could calm a storm, then why were they so surprised? And at the end it says, and who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this man that that calms the storm? We've been with him these several days and we've seen him do some great miracles, but only God can calm the storm. Who is this man? That's the great question of life, isn't it? Who is this man named Jesus? Is he just a great prophet and teacher like the crowds are saying? Or is he the son of God, fully God and fully man? If the disciples understood that he was the son of God, fully in God and fully man at this point, then they wouldn't have been so anxious. They would have realized, we've got the Lord in our boat. God is with us. He's not going to allow us to drown. I mean, do you remember what Jesus says at the beginning of our passage? He says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. If Jesus launches them on a journey as the Son of God, you've got to know that he's going to get you to the other side of the lake. He's not going to allow you to perish and drown on the way. It's the good news of the Gospels that in Jesus Christ, we have a God who is with us. And we have in Jesus a Savior who ultimately is able to take us, no matter the storm in life, he's ultimately able to take us to the other side. Now, just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean life's gonna be easy, does it? Jesus allowed the storm to happen. He didn't prevent it. He could have prevented it. No, he allows the storm to happen because the storm was a great test of his disciples' faith. And that's what the storms are in our lives today. They, they help test our faith. They help make us stronger as we rely on God for his deliverance. As the Apostle Paul explains when writing to the church in Corinth about all the persecutions he's had to face and, and the thorn that God gives him in the flesh, he ultimately says that all these pains and all these struggles help me see that ultimately God's grace is sufficient for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we read, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. God can use the trials and the tribulations of this life to make us stronger as we cling to him in the midst of the storm. As I spent that night desperately praying for my daughter Elizabeth who had to stay in the hospital overnight for observation, I remember crying out to God and saying, Lord, please don't let there be any permanent effects from this severe concussion. Don't there be any permanent brain damage. And I was praying to God. I began to, I began to you know, negotiate with God. I began to say, Lord, if someone has to go to the hospital in the family, let it be me, not my daughter, not my son, not my wife. No, if someone in the family, if someone in the Griffin family has to go to the hospital, let it be me. I don't want to see my wife or my children suffer. As I prayed that to God, I was reminded of the cross and how God, in his great love for us, allowed his son to suffer so that we might all be saved. And as I remembered the cross, I felt the Holy Spirit say to the depths of my heart and my soul, Howard, I love Elizabeth more than you ever can, for I created her and I died for her. Jesus says in John chapter 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends. It's the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we can see that we have a God who is with us and we ultimately we have a God who is for us. We have a God who loves us so much that he's willing to have his own son die on our behalf as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who is able to calm the storms in our lives. And in his resurrection, we can see that ultimately we have a Savior who promises us that he will take us to the other side, no matter what storms we may go through in this life. For Jesus tells his disciples on the very night that he's betrayed, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, myself that where I am, you may be also. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for all of us to get to the other side where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more struggle, only praise. For Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The next time we face that unexpected storm in life, when we feel overwhelmed by the, by the circumstances and our hearts become filled with anxiety, may we cling to Jesus, our Savior, who has the power to calm the storm and has ultimately promised each one of us that no matter what storm we may go through in this life, He will take us to the other side. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Please join him as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who is with us and for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have the power to calm the storm. And I don't know what storms people are going through today, but I do know that in this world we will face trials and tribulations and storms. Help us to be ever mindful that you are with us and you are for us. 
And you have promised us that no matter what storm we go through, ultimately you will take us to the other side. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.